I'm Sue Lin Wong, host of The Prince, a new podcast series from The Economist. It's about China's leader, Xi Jinping. He's the most powerful man in the world, but he remains a mystery. His story is hidden behind a brutal censorship and propaganda machine. After 10 years in charge, it looks like he'll break convention to stay on, perhaps for the rest of his life. I'll tell the real story of China's leader, the lessons he learned from watching his parents lose everything and from rising through the ranks of a vicious regime. Now, he's using those lessons to control over a billion people. He's changed China, he's changed my life, and the decisions he makes affect us all. To understand what's next, you need to know where he came from. Listen to The Prince from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Some people were made to follow the instructions. We were made to make our own. To always measure twice and never cut corners. Unless, of course, we've got a compound miter saw. Northern Tool and Equipment is a problem solver's paradise. There's nothing we can't find, fix, or figure out together. We're made for this. Start solving your projects today at northerntool.com. Today, we're talking about Nick Foles, the Super Bowl 52 MVP who took down the evil empire and whether or not the Denver Broncos should get in on the sweepstakes for his services. You are listening to the Huddle Up Podcast. Welcome to the Huddle Up Podcast, your go-to show for all things Broncos. Welcome in, everybody, to the Huddle Up Podcast presented by Mile High Huddle. It's time to drop some knowledge. I'm your host, Chad Jensen, Scout Media, CBS Sports Digital. With me is Will Keys, editor and writer at Mile High Huddle. And I am still, Will, just tripping on the Super Bowl. Like, I can't believe the Philadelphia Eagles against all odds. And, you know, let's face it, it's not like they were some tiny underdog, but they dethroned the champs, they vanquished the evil empire. And to everyone's enjoyment that does not live within a 150-mile radius of Boston, (laughs) the New England Patriots went down in flames. You know, it's funny because last year when they came back and they beat the Falcons, that famous 28-3 deficit, it was honestly more devastating to me than uh, some Broncos playoff losses. Like, I think I was a little more heartbroken (laughs) after the Patriots won than – you know, when the Broncos lost to the Patriots in 2011 or when the Broncos lost to the Colts in 2014. Right. Uh, I'll never put it ahead of like the, the Ravens game or anything or, <laughs> or the Seahawks, but I felt probably half of the joy from from when the Broncos beat the Panthers in Super Bowl 50 mm. a couple days ago in, in Super Bowl 52 and the Patriots went down. So They call that like vicarious, you know, you're living vicariously through another fan yes. base. You're living vicariously through the pain of another fan base or individual or, or team in this case. You know, it was interesting. One thing that, <clears throat> just to talk a little bit about the Super Bowl and then we'll get into some Nick Foles talk here. Uh, by the way, you're listening to Huddle Up again. 
Make sure you're following the show on Twitter at HuddleUpPod. Also, make sure you're following Mile High Huddle on Facebook and on Twitter at Mile High Huddle. This is a show designed each and every week to give you a deep dive on your favorite team, the Denver Broncos, but we need your help. We can't grow without you, so make sure if you haven't done it, you take a second, go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, whichever platform that you are listening to the show, and leave a creative review. If you haven't done that, this is a call to action. If you haven't done it, and you are a consistent weekly listener, I'm disappointed in you. If you haven't done it, just take a second and help us out. We really appreciate it. But getting back to the Super Bowl, there's there's one play in particular, three actual plays, but one that really sticks in my craw that was actually kind of counterintuitive. Usually it's New England that gets all the calls that swung, you know, swing, swing in their way. But Philadelphia had the two touchdowns that were questionable. I'm not going to – we'll save that for just a, another, you know, few minutes. What I want to talk about is have you seen the piece, the news that came out on the Nick Foles touchdown reception? Have you seen how that was, in fact, an illegal play? Yeah, I did see it. So, and my, my, my brain just, you know, <laughs> I pushed it as far back um, in my brain as, as humanly possible. So um, right. I saw it once said, hey, looks like they might have a point, and got on with my day. <laughs> right. We're, we're not going to lose any sleepover, let's face it. But for, Heavens, our, no. for the listeners yeah. who don't know what we're talking about, so on that play, you're, the, the NFL teams, NFL offenses, you got to have seven players on the line of scrimmage, okay? And you can look and see that on that play, the Philadelphia Eagles only had six men on the line of scrimmage. Now, what I read, and I don't know if this is true, but this is what I read, the reason – because Nick Foles, by the way, when he did his fake audible and then he kind of scoots out to the edge like a tight end and the ball gets direct snapped, he did not close off the tackle. So he wasn't on the line of scrimmage. He was lined up more like an H-back, if you if you can kind of follow what I'm saying here, listeners. And so the reason why, from what I understand, they chose to let that play stand is, and you'll see this, anytime you watch a game, you'll see the receivers get to their spots, they'll line up, they'll point to the sideline, and they'll, they'll raise their arm. And then they'll get some kind of an affirmation, and then they'll drop their arm and go about their business to play. The ball snapped, and they go. Well, what they're doing is they're pointing to the sideline official and saying, am I good? And if they're good, they're good, and they go. Well, on that play, and the official will tell them. On that play, Alshon Jeffrey lines up in his spot, points to the official. The official gives him the okay. They run the play, touchdown. The rest is history. Under review, they decided to let that play stand because the refs said yes to the receiver. So kind of interesting, but it, I mean, again, we're not going to lose any sleep over this, but Philly did kind of get away with one there. But I don't think, Will, that that should take away from how spectacular that play was. No, it, it was so expertly designed. It, it kind of reminds me of, you know, that play that, that's been called a few times in like high school or, or I don't know, division three college football, where the quarterback will pretend like he doesn't know that the play has been called and right. he'll, he'll secretly snap the ball and kind of walk to the sideline and almost like go talk to the coach. Mm-hmm. And then when the defense is caught off guard, just run 60 yards for a touchdown. Right. It kind of reminded me of that where I don't know. It's just the defense just couldn't have possibly prepared for something like that. And it's something that you can only bring out, I think once ever. Mm-hmm. And they just picked the perfect time for it, and I applaud Doug Peterson for you know taking risks and doing <laughs> well, what Jacksonville wouldn't do, and, and right. really going for the kill against New England. And that's the only way to beat them. True, you got to keep them on their heels. You got to pull a rabbit out of your hat. And you know what's interesting is the mic'd up um, 
production of the Super Bowl came out, and there's that scene uh, of that play with Nick Foles. He goes to the sideline, and I don't know if it's true, but the way NFL films portrayed that, it was actually Nick Foles' idea to call Philadelphia. It was Philadelphia something. He right. Goes, he goes to the sideline, and you know they're trying to decide what to run in this crucial play. I think it was it fourth down or was it third? Down? It was it was fourth and fourth goal. down. That's right. So yeah. fourth and goal. And he walks to the sideline, and he sees Doug Peterson. He says, Philly, Philly? And Doug <laughs> kind of pauses for a second. He goes, yeah, 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 Philly, Philly. And then they all kind of huddle up for a second to kind of talk about it. And then he sprints back to the to the actual huddle, and they run the play, and the rest is history. But it's really interesting. If you haven't done so, go to YouTube. You can find it. It's a very interesting little window into a little piece of NFL history. Yeah, and they showed that the only other quarterback in Super Bowl history to catch a pass – was the Broncos only John Elway. Now, that wasn't a loss, a 42 to 10 loss, so not quite as impressive. <laughs> yeah, the um, prestige is kind of big. Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the plays that I think will be forgotten in history. Um <laughs> kind of swept under the rug under Doug Williams 7 million touchdowns in that game. Um <laughs> But cool, nonetheless. It reminds me of the GIF. I, I'm sure everyone's seen this by now if you have a Facebook account, but there's that GIF going around that shows Brady swinging out to, for his catch that you know was actually incomplete. Yeah. He wasn't able to haul it in, but it's the someone sub, substituted the football for a Lombardi trophy, and he goes soaring through the air and slips through his fingers, you know. And it's uh, it's just quintessential. If you if you enjoyed how that game played out, then you got you got to find that GIF. The internet is still undefeated. You know, I thought it was funny that if you watch that Patriots Eagles game back in 2015, with I think it was I think Sam Bradford was still playing quarterback for the Eagles, but the Eagles actually won that game, and the Patriots ran that same play, and Brady caught the ball and went for like 30 something yards. Mm. But I, I found it fascinating that they called the same play against the same team, and you know the biggest of all stages. Definitely. And of course this time it didn't work. Yeah. Those other two uh, plays I was talking about, let's start with the one to the running back Clement. Uh, did, yeah. you, did you think that now take away your bias, take away the sweet right, right, saber right. we have in the, in, in bathing in the tears of all these new England fans. Did you sure. think in the moment where you like, mm, that should be upheld as a touchdown or were you like, mm, that's questionable. I think that's getting called back. Well, I think it was a lot closer than the last touchdown. Right. Obviously, I didn't, you know, I didn't have any doubts about that one. But the thing that I'll say about the Clement touchdown was that he catches the ball. And the ball obviously moves in his hands, but he never loses possession after the second of the 3 feet come down. Yep. And obviously the third foot was out of bounds, and the ball moves a little bit. But you know what they say about surviving the ground is the ball can move but the ground can't aid in the process of catching. The ball moves in his hands, but he never loses control of the ball. So I think it's still a touchdown. The second one, of course, Zach Ertz. So this was the one that sealed the deal. Very similar to the Jesse James touchdown that was not a touchdown in the uh, uh, Pittsburgh and New England game in the regular season, if I recall. That wasn't the, p the playoffs. That was the regular season. Yeah, so um, right. very similar. This one, of course, was upheld, whereas the Jesse James was ruled incomplete, totally altered the outcome of the game and uh, the destiny of who would be the number one seed in the AFC. Your thoughts on the second touchdown? I thought that was a touchdown on the way, and I was, you know, I saw the play, and then 
I kind of like in a, in a very nervous state of mind, kind of just walked away from the TV because if you're not there, you assume that nothing bad can happen. <laughs> right. um, and, you know, the Patriots can't like return a two point conversion, you know, 99 yards. But I come back and I just I hear Collinsworth, Chris Collinsworth saying, oh, they're going to reverse this. Right, right. You know, this is clearly not a catch. And I was just looking at it, and I'm like, what do you really have to do to catch a football in the NFL? Exactly. Because yep. he catches it at the five, you know, breaks a tackle, and dives into the end zone. Diving into the end zone after you've caught the ball at the five is not a part of the process of the catch. Right. And, you know, him reaching out, extending his arms. And, I, by the way, I thought the Jesse James catch was a touchdown as well. Agreed. And I, I, I'm reveling in the irony of the Patriots, you know, being – ousted essentially well, on, on a play that got them to the one seed in the first absolutely. place. Absolutely, The irony is just beautiful. I mean, it's, it was tasty as it gets, but you know, one thing I got to say though, I mean, in most cases you, you play 10 games like that against the Patriots and have three critical plays that, that go your way that are game deciding type plays that go your way. Right. Or, or, or let's, let's put it this way. Three game uh, changing plays I would say nine out of those ten games they're going to favor the Patriots more often than the opposing team. Philly were the beneficiaries this time around, and I have a little bit of a theory as to why. I don't know if anyone saw this. Will, I'm not sure. We haven't discussed this, if whether or not you've seen this, but in the two weeks between the AFC Championship game and the Super Bowl, some dude, I don't even know who, who he is. He's not associated, to my knowledge, with any major sports network. He's not a journalist. Probably just a fan. I can't remember his name. Uh, if he ever listens to this show, forgive me. But he put together, and it's kind of long. It was a longish video, about 20 minutes long. But it was basically laying, uh, building the case for a sense of favoritism for the Patriots in 2018. And it went through all these different games, all these different game-changing scenarios in which there were questionable calls, lack of calls, lack of penalties, uh, overturned touchdowns, right. different things like this that went the Patriots' way and totally paved the way for what became such a successful season for them, and it went viral. I saw it personally, where I saw it was on Facebook, and by the time I had seen it, which was sometime early last week, I mean, it was well over a million views, and I can only imagine it grew even more. And I got to wonder if there's some kind of uh, awareness at the league level of, look, Mm -hmm. you know, so many fans now are saying that this thing is fixed for the Patriots, that you know, listen up, officials. Let's have a little powwow. Let's let these boys play. Unless it's something egregious, let's keep our freaking laundry on our hips, and you know, just just be careful in turn. Be extra careful. I mean, obviously, I'm. I have no doubt that these referees, um, you know, are very particular in how they call the games and make their decisions on when plays are are reviewed and this and that. But I, I gotta wonder if there wasn't maybe upping the ante a little bit for this big game with so much scrutiny. And so many, such a large portion of the NFL fan base questioning the favoritism of the New England Patriots. Right. Well, I, I definitely don't believe that the NFL has fixed any games in favor of the Patriots. And that's kind of, that's actually kind of a leap for me because as a Sacramento Kings fan, uh, any NBA fans will know that um, Tim Donahue famously exposed David Stern in the NBA um, for the way that they officiated game six of the Western Conference Finals between the Kings and the Lakers back in 2002 mm-hmm. um, and, and in favor of the Los Angeles Lakers. And of course, they went on to win the series. But I do believe that just like in the NBA, where players get the benefit of the doubt on fouls, 
I think teams in the NFL tend to get the benefit of the doubt from officials. And I think it's human nature too. And do you remember that story a few years ago where Cam Newton um, took a big hit and then he talked to one of the one of the sideline officials? Right. May, I, I want to say it was Ed Hockley, but maybe it wasn't. I don't I don't want to accuse Hockley of anything that he may or may not have done. Right. Um, but they said, you know, Cam, like you're you're just not quite old enough to get that call or something like that. Yep. Yep. Still a little too young to get that call. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I remember and that. It just makes right. It it just makes me feel like, you know, there's a certain level of reputation that goes into the officials' heads. Absolutely. Um, because you know they're they're not robots. They're human beings, and and they're making split second judgments, and they have their own biases, unconscious or not, um, that goes into the way that they call these games. But I think you're right, and that there's you know obviously the Super Bowl is the biggest sporting event in this country possibly on earth and you know even bigger than you know in magnitude exponentially bigger than the afc championship and there are so many calls especially um in this year's afc championship between the jaguars and the patriots you think that aj boye pass interference Mm -hmm. especially sticks out in my mind where it just looks like the everything was going the patriots way and they only had one penalty called on them called on them to i think the jaguars nine or ten well and I think I, I think it's fair to say that you know maybe the refs either individually in their mind knew that you know there's a little more attention on this recently and yeah. we have to be on our p's and q's and make sure we're not you know skewing anything um, whether unconsciously or not in favor of the New England Patriots. And most of these refs, I don't know how many people realize this, but most of these refs have professional lives. Uh, yeah, many of them are uh, lawyers in their professional mm-hmm. lives between the season. Um, and they have law firms, they have uh, all kinds of different professional ties, and so many of them are tied to, you know, litigation. So they have experience in making these type of, of knowing the rules uh, down to the last detail, and then, of course, adjudicating, you know, these type of decisions. But put yourself in, the, in their shoes. You've got throw mama from the train in a hoodie, bearing down, staring at you from the sideline, okay? The, 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 the crazy bandit lady from the Goonies in a hoodie, <laughs> staring at you saying this call better go my way or there's going to be hell to pay. I mean, there's some there's some real human charisma and some human pressure that goes into some of these calls these officials make from the sideline, but you know, we kind of digress here. Let's just all be thankful that the uh this dynasty, I think in a sense could be over. I mean, it could be. We had the news and then we'll get to Foles. We had the news. It looked like it there was there was going to be an, an additional death knell put in with both Matt Patricia, the defensive coordinator, leaving to take the head coaching job in Detroit. And then, of course, offensive coordinator Josh McDaniels agreeing to a deal with the Indianapolis Colts to become their new head coach. They had a press conference scheduled for Wednesday. And then at the 11th hour, news breaks from ESPN's Adam Schefter that Josh McDaniels has suddenly changed his mind after not only agreeing in principle um, and actually hiring more than one coach was high has been hired now uh, to work under McDaniels chose to back out and stick with the New England Patriots Robert Kraft the owner uh, in the since the Super Bowl has uh, reportedly just cranked up the pressure on McDaniels and sweetened the the money to keep have him stay reworked his deal to stay in New England and I wouldn't be surprised well if there was now we in the same report it was basically said also that Bill Belichick is at least for sure coming back for 2018 to coach the Patriots but I would imagine that part of the persuasive power 
of right. Robert Kraft was that, listen, Bill's about out the door, and we've always wanted you to be the guy that, t you know, carries the torch forward when Bill retires. You're going to screw this up. You're, you know, you're going to leave. You're going to miss that opportunity. And, hell, let's do this. I'll add X amount of dollars to your contract. You still get to work with the best quarterback in the NFL, and uh, we can go about our business. And he left the Indianapolis Colts hanging in the lurch. And I can't help but wonder, Will, if – Let's say Bill Belichick continues to coach for another five years and he gets antsy and he starts looking again for another head coaching job. I, if I were an NFL owner, I mean, this is a, let's let's not forget, this is an elite brotherhood of 32 men, a fraternity, mm -hmm. if you will. And this guy crossed the line big time. Forget what he did in Denver. OK, forget about that. This case, he's getting a second chance. And he totally spurns one of the 32 NFL clubs. And one of the more storied ones, a, a, a team, a club that has been to the top of the mountain twice. Yeah. Leaves him hanging. Well, let me first say that this is a great day for the Indianapolis Colts. They were about to make a terrible, terrible mistake. And the man who they were about to hand the reins to um, basically bailed them out and said, actually – um, I'm not going to ruin your franchise for the for the unforeseeable future, and I, I'm going to return to my lair of evil and, and go do my bidding for Lord Belichick. So, I think the Colts they really dodged a bullet, and I I don't know why the NFL was so blind to the fact that Josh McDaniels is he's just a snake. He really is, and it's not just that he left the Colts in the lurch. He hired. He brought in assistant coaches mm -hmm. to fill out his staff, and then he decided after the fact. After they'd signed contracts. Correct. Not correct. him, by the way. He hadn't signed his yeah. quite yet, which is why he was able to wriggle out of this thing. Yeah, and he decided, well, you know, Robert Kraft's actually going to sweeten the pot for me. I think I'm going to head back to New England um, where I've, you know, and that's the only place where McDaniels has ever even had success. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, I don't have to tell the listeners of this show how, you know, much of an unmitigated disaster he was for the Broncos. But when he, when he was the offensive coordinator for the St. Louis Rams in 2011, they averaged 12 points per game, which is, I think it's either the ninth or the 11th fewest of all time. Um, but either way, a historically bad offense. And that's not with, you know, that's not with Nate Sudfeld or someone like that at quarterback. It was Sam Bradford, who's a, you know, fine quarterback. So I just don't, I don't know. I didn't see what the Colts saw on him. I didn't see what everybody in the NFL saw on him. It seems like we just have a very short memory, um, except for, you know, the people who saw it firsthand unfold in Denver. They, you know, they saw the real McDaniels and yeah. how things really went down. Well, I'll say this, and we talked about this, I think, on the last show, is that, you know, as an offensive mind, I think Josh McDaniels is one of the brighter guys as far as play calling in the NFL. Now, that's a different animal than his skill set as a, you know, his, his character, I should say, as a lack, man. And lack obviously, of character. Lack of character, yes. You know, that's a different animal. He has proven now that he is, as you say, a snake. But still, when, when I was thinking about him going there in a perfect world to Indianapolis with a healthy Andrew Luck, I thought that could have been a great match offensively for the Colts. Now, how he could have shaken the organization, how everything would have trickled down with him as a leader, how it could have affected things overall, we'll never know. But now I have to kind of backtrack a little bit and say, look, I mean, the book is out on this guy. Steer clear of this phenomenal 
train wreck of a coach that he might be bright, he might be maniacal, he might be, you know, a little mini Bill Belichick in a sense, but Bill Belichick, he is not. He might be like his master, the Dark Lord of the Sith, but he is not Bill Belichick, let's face it, and yet he's romping around the NFL as if he is. Right, right, and I always go back to Nate Jackson's book. I think it's called Getting Up Slowly. Slow Getting Up. Slow Getting Up, there we go, where he's, you know, he paints this really good scene of McDaniels, who's like a 30-something-year-old head coach, right. not probably not older than Nate Jackson himself, and he's sucking on a lollipop in his office and telling Nate Jackson that he's, he just doesn't have it anymore. For a guy that's never you know coached a game as a head coach in the NFL before, you know, telling guys that they're just not good enough for this roster and then flaming out within a year and a half. He's just not, he's just not head coaching material. And I, I don't know how he's charmed two owners into head coaching positions at this point. Um, but it sure looks like he's the successor in new England, which as a proud hater of the New England Patriots, you know, couldn't make me any happier. So, you know, you reap what you sow. So you do they'll indeed. they'll end up with um, the next great dynasty, headed up by Josh McDaniels and <laughs> you know Brian Hoyer. Uh, yeah, and that's what I was going to say is that you know don't expect New England fans, those of you who might come into contact with this show, for everything to continue business as usual with Josh McDaniels when Bill Belichick hangs it up. It's gonna. It's a. He's a different animal. You know. There's yes. a lot of similarities. I'm sure he's learned a lot from his boss and his mentor. But this is a guy who. I mean, all bets are off. And I read in the piece. You know, it brought up Belichick's history. And I want. I want to move on. But there's the last thing I want to say is, part of Belichick's history is him kind of spurning the Jets. Bill Belichick did a similar yeah. thing, leaving the Jets hanging on the same day that he was to be introduced. Um, and so, you know, there's. Screw those guys. Screw the New England Patriots. (laughs) Screw Bill Belichick. Screw Josh McDaniels. And Tom Brady, eat your heart out. Now, I want to talk about Nick Foles, but before we do, I got to remind you guys to capitalize on this opportunity with our sponsor, Audible. We say thank you to Audible for sponsoring the show, but you guys, get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash huddle up. You get over 180,000 different titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle or MP3 player. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash huddle up. Our listeners get that 30-day free trial and a smorgasbord of books to choose from. I listen to this app each and every day. In fact, today I was listening. uh, I purchased a book, used a credit on a book. I've been a member of Audible now going on probably about two and a half years, and I have been listening to a phenomenal book um, called 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson that is a little bit more of a cerebral motivational book. I don't know how you, how else to describe it, but it kind of takes a look at things from a different perspective and, and kind of inspires you and motivates you to put your life in order. And it's in a little bit different way, not quite so straightforward and ham-handed. It's a little bit more philosophical, and I really dig that. But what's cool about Audible is I can listen to that when I'm at the gym. I can, just like you do with, I'm sure, this podcast, you can listen to it while you're doing other things, whether you're at work you're on your commutes, you're at the gym, you're in the kitchen, whatever you're doing, you get to listen to this this medium, this audio medium, including Audible, while you're doing other things. And that's why podcasts and that's why Audible has revolutionized the industry in terms of content consumption and how we engage the content uh, that we want to consume. 
We don't always have time to sit down and turn the pages on the books we want to read, but Audible allows us to do so while we're getting other things done. So our listeners get the opportunity to have a 30-day trial and a free book. So go to audibletrial.com slash huddle up and give it a try. I guarantee you, you will not be disappointed. And so let's talk about Nick Foles. Now, obviously, this is a storyline that has really peaked in the minds and the interests of Broncos country, you know, not only since... Philadelphia's remarkable run through the playoffs, but since that just phenomenal performance in the Super Bowl, Nick Foles is possibly being a legitimate and viable option uh, to be the Denver Broncos quarterback moving forward. And I think to kind of couch this with some historical perspective, we need to go back in time to 2012 when John Elway was entering his second year uh, with the Denver Broncos in a GM, you know, front office role. And he was scouting for quarterbacks, looking for someone to back up uh, Peyton Manning and be the the long-term developmental franchise quarterback. He had his eyes set on three guys that they scouted really hard. And Denver was, uh, at a certain point, they had come to terms with taking one of these three guys, depending on how the board fell. You had Brock Osweiler, whom we all know Denver ended up taking uh, first of the three guys we're going to discuss in the second round. You had Russell Wilson, who ended up going in the third round to Seattle. And you had Nick Foles, who the Broncos were also very interested in, out of Arizona, who ended up also going in the third round to the Philadelphia Eagles. So we know that John Elway, at a certain point, as a prospect, not as a, as a veteran, but as a prospect, John Elway liked himself some Nick Foles. Now, you fast forward through six years of an NFL career, and there was a time, if you go back in 2013, that he looked like a burgeoning NFL star where, you know, he made the Pro Bowl, he had that uh, game in 2013 in which he tied Peyton Manning's single-game record for seven touchdown passes the same year that Manning broke and set it. He tied it, ended up going to the Pro Bowl that year, uh, 27 touchdowns to just two interceptions. Well, he went yep. back the next year, uh, had some injury issues, only ended up starting eight games, uh, and they let him go. Well, they traded him, <clears throat> to be to be more specific. They ended up making him part of the deal that brought Sam Bradford from St. Louis to Philadelphia. And so when he got Foles to St. Louis, they extended him. They gave him a two-year extension, paid him about $12 bucks a year, and he flamed out quickly. I mean, he was so bad that uh, – who was it? That Case Keenum ended up coming in for him, if I recall right? Correct, um, yeah. So he flamed out and then spent all of last year, all of 2016, I should say, because it's not last year anymore, but he spent all of 2016 backing up Alex Smith in Kansas City, and then, of course, uh, Flames out there, and Philly signs him to be Carson Wentz's backup. And then Wentz goes down in Week 14, and it looks like all is lost. I mean, we lamented the loss for Philadelphia. I mean, everybody felt bad for Philadelphia when they lost Carson Wentz, and it looked like it really was going to go the way we feared. Um, he, he looked not so hot for a couple games, and then all of a sudden, Nick Foles became an entirely different quarterback, an even better version of the 2013 Nick Foles and leading this team all the way to a Super Bowl championship. So <clears throat> before we get into what it's going to take to get Nick Foles, in your mind, Will, should he be a quarterback the Broncos should have up there on the board in terms of consideration with the likes of your Kirk Cousins, with the likes of Case Keenum, and all the other quarterbacks we've discussed on the show up to this point? I think, you know, after seeing what he did on Sunday – I think there, you know, there's no way you can leave him off of that list. And I was ready to kind of write it off as, you know, this is Doug Peterson's doing. You know, he, he 
elevated Carson Wentz game to, you know, who should have been, you know, the league's MVP had he not torn his ACL in week 15. Yep. But Nick Foles, outside of just, you know, the system perspective where they created some some really easy throws for him and set up some nice plays for him. And, and, you know, to the offensive line's credit, too, even without Jason Peters at left tackle, was not sacked the whole game. But a lot of that had to do with, you know, Nick Foles just playing a really good game. And he moved in the pocket well. He was aware of everything that was going on. And what really impressed me was there are four or five throws that Tom Brady, I don't even think, would would dream of making. And what sticks out is that first throw to Alshon Jeffrey. The touchdown. Right, the touchdown. Beautiful. The throw to Corey Clement. I think there was a sideline pass to Nelson Aguilar. And, you know, just some of the throws, like the the fourth down throw to to Zach Ertz where he kind of backed up and then just stood his ground and fired a dart on fourth down with six mm-hmm. minutes left in the Super Bowl, yep. down a point. So I I was just, I don't know, I was really impressed. And he yeah. kind of strike yeah, he kind of strikes me like Eli Manning as this guy who's mm-hmm. just so goofy and like just kind of a kind of a nerd that he's just he doesn't even know that he's not supposed to beat Tom Brady in this game right. and that's like his that's his biggest asset is that he's just unaware of <laughs> of the circumstances yeah, he's and unaware it's, of how much he looks like Napoleon Dynamite correct yeah no he he couldn't care less and he's just this you know oh, shucks kind of guy like we talk about with Eli and yep. you know maybe there's something to be said about you know playing playing all-time great quarterbacks like Tom Brady with that mindset but you know he and Doug Peterson obviously Doug Peterson took some huge risks by going for it on fourth down like he did all season you know I'm glad he didn't change things up for the last game but you know he was just throwing balls into tight windows and he was taking chances and more often than not, it was paying off. The one interception wasn't his fault. It got tipped up. Yep. And he just – he did everything well. Um, I know that, you know, he doesn't have a great track record outside of that 2013 season with Chip Kelly where I think, you know, even now I think it's a little bit of smoke and mirrors. But we have to remember that when he was playing for the Rams, his head coach was Jeff Fisher. And True. the other quarterbacks that have been coached by Jeff Fisher, um, like Case Keenum and Jared Goff, played very well this season without Jeff Fisher. Um, So I think he really, you know, you have to give him a little consideration. What really blew me away was his poise. I mean, never at one point did that stage or that moment seem like it was too big for Nick Foles. And there are most quarterbacks in the NFL who are guys who have been conditioned to endure these situations would have wilted in the face of that pressure, especially in the fourth quarter. I mean, man, Philadelphia Uh just had to keep putting it on. We knew that uh, Tom Brady was going to bring the Patriots back, and sure enough, he did. They took the lead, and they just had to keep the pedal to the metal. And so many quarterbacks in today's NFL, even the highly paid, what you might consider Tier 1 and Tier 2, so many would have wilted in the face of that pressure. But he took it in stride. He willed his team, uh, and I would say very much so, put the team on his back and, and got the job done. Now, the the issue that the Broncos face that's a little bit different than what they, they stand to face with Kirk Cousins and also a guy like uh, Case Keenum is both of those previously mentioned quarterbacks are, at this point at least, scheduled to be unrestricted free agents, whereas Nick Foles is still right. under contract with the Philadelphia Eagles. So translation, the Broncos, if they wanted Nick Foles, are going to have to trade. They're going to have to give up some kind of valuable capital, whether it's draft capital or personnel, in order 
to acquire him. Now, I'm not going to say the specifics because we put this in a VIP article uh, a couple days back on milehighhuddle.com. And if you haven't, make sure you go and sign up, become a Mile High Huddle VIP so you get access to 100% of the content we produce, especially going into free agency and NFL draft. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss a single thing we come up with and we come across in terms of the buzz we pick up from sources around the NFL and contacts with the scouts. So if you go to milehighhuddle.com, there's a little green bar. It says uh, subscribe. Click that. It's five bucks a month. You're, you're good to go. You can cancel anytime. But it's a great way to support this show. It's also a great way, of course, to support the site. But we put in a piece a couple days ago we published that talked about what we've heard from league sources that Philadelphia is going to ask for for the teams that call about Nick Foles. And it's a hefty sum. I'm not going to say exactly what it is, but it's a hefty, hefty sum. And it's more than one high-round pick. Let me just put it that way. So is he going to be worth that? Is that a, is that a price? Let's just, let's just assume right. the worst and say it's going to take two first-round picks. Let's just say that. Maybe it's not that steep, but let's just say it for the sake of argument. To me, that would be too rich for my blood. I don't think I Nick agree. Foles, you know, there's still too much unknown about Nick Foles to be willing to risk that much. But... There's who knows. And the thing is with Philadelphia that we got to keep in mind, Will, is that with Carson Wentz tearing his ACL in week 14, if everything goes perfectly according to plan in his rehab and recovery, he might be ready to go week one. There's a really, really good chance that they're going to have to lean on Nick Foles for a couple weeks to start the season. Maybe not a guarantee, mm-hmm. but a really good chance. So it's in Philly's best interest, really to hold on to him for if they can, even maybe up until the trade deadline in week six or whatever it is. Um, but they might get an offer that's too good to refuse. So, in other words, teams who seriously want to court Philly for the services of Nick Foles, they're going to have to come correct, and they're going to have to be willing to put some some money where their mouths are. Yeah, and especially how high the Broncos are picking in 2018 and the quarterbacks that are going to be available, available to them at pick five – as much as I, I did like what Nick Foles did in the Super Bowl, he's not bringing Zach Ertz and Alshon Jeffrey and, and Corey Clement and the running the two running backs, J.H.I. and LeGarrette Blunt, who I think both averaged something like six yards a carry, and Doug Peterson's system with them. So, you know, I, I just don't – that's a little too steep, I, I think. Yeah. And I'd be willing to give up something like a couple second rounders perhaps. Mm. But I just there's a there's a tipping point for me, and you kind of have to think about it objectively. You know, we're all we're all you know kind of shaken to the core that a guy like Nick Foles could upend Tom Brady in the Super Bowl, and we want to elevate him to you know some type of mythical status mm-hmm. for the great game that he played on Sunday. And you kind of have to remember that you know we have to take everything into account. And I, I know this kind of goes against what I said earlier, but you, you know you can't pay for one game, or else you become the Oakland Raiders. You who, can't pay who, for three yeah. games, yeah. Right? Mm. You can't even play. You can't pay for three games. You can't go ahead and you know offer Matt Flynn the keys to the kingdom because, I mean, we saw what the Oakland Raiders did when they signed Jeff Hostetler, who won a Super Bowl for the Giants, mm-hmm. and and Desmond Howard, yep. who won Super Bowl MVP for the Packers in '96. And it's just you you can't expect that, you know, the, the rest of the team is coming with them. And the Super Bowl kind of it, it is a little bit of human nature um, that we're going to overrate 
the performance in in such a big game like the Super Bowl. Right. Uh, but when you're thinking as far as you know inserting him into another situation and an offensive situation like the Broncos that certainly isn't on par with the Eagles right now as far as offensive line and weapons and, and scheme and everything you know you can't expect that you're going to be getting the same Nick Foles and and that's why I don't think you can put up two first rounders for well and and as you talked about the system I mean the personnel is one thing I think Nick Foles could probably make a lot of hay with some of the talent that Denver has at the skill positions, especially considering Jake Butt potentially be, being a factor in his second season. But the biggest key is the fact that you don't get to bring Doug Peterson's system along with you. Now, if you signed a guy like Nick Foles or you acquired him via trade, if whatever the case may be, you know you can pick his brain. You can find some of the plays that he really liked and some of the looks and different things. Uh, and you would want to do that. You would almost have to do that in order to maximize your investment and, and capitalize on his skill set and what he does best. But at the same time, he also benefited greatly from the perfect storm of scheme, coaching, and personnel around him. So as, yeah. a, as a front office evaluator, you also have to consider how much of that, how much of those different factors can we pull into our situation if we acquire Nick Foles? And the answer is very little of it. I mean, you can bring in some of the uh, philosophies and as I said some of the plays Nick Foles liked he could draw them up on the board you can put them in the playbook and all that stuff and those run pass options I mean they're 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 deadly and obviously Philadelphia especially in the romp through the playoffs but you saw Carson Wentz do it in the regular season I mean they dictated on a game in game out basis and you're going to see a <laughs> lot of a lot of copycats in the NFL moving forward on that front of teams really moving in that direction and trying to copy some of the successes that Philadelphia has had. But a guy like Bill Musgrave, Will, who is, seems to be so entrenched in his West Coast offense philosophy. And and you know what? It's a philosophy that John Elway shares, and it's a philosophy that Gary Kubiak shares. So if you bring in a quarterback, I don't care where you get him from, trade market, or if you pay big dollars on the free agent market or the draft – you're going to structure some things to fit those guys, but you've got to be relatively confident they can play your system. And while I don't right. have anything, any reason necessarily to believe that Nick Foles couldn't operate in the West Coast, it still would be a different system overall than what he ran in Philly. And I think if you want to compare him to a guy like Kirk Cousins, I think Kirk, Kirk Cousins has had success in every system uh, that he's played in in the NFL. I, I think he was fairly successful with Mike Shanahan as the head coach and Kyle Shanahan as the offensive coordinator. Right. And then obviously had his best success with Sean McVay as the offensive coordinator. Um, thinking back to 2015 when they won um, or when they made the playoffs, won the NFC East, I believe. Uh, and then when McVay departed this year and, and really a lot of his offensive weapons, Deshaun Jackson and, and Pierre Garçon went along with him. Yeah. Um, he still put up good numbers. I know they didn't win, but you know, Kirk Cousins, obviously he's not, he's not going to make $30 million, you know, for no reason. He's a good quarterback and he had a good season regardless of, um, you know, who he's throwing the ball to. And he had sustained so, success. I mean, he's right. not, he's not this here today, gone tomorrow, here today, gone tomorrow, like you've seen with Nick Foles, even as impressive as... And you know what? Here's the thing that kind of throws everything we're saying out the window a little bit is how much the NFL is a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately type of league. And right now, Nick Foles has done the most. He's done more even than yeah. than Kirk Cousins. And 
you would just have to I, I don't envy the Denver Broncos in their decision because you if you're looking at it from a veteran perspective, you're weighing a guy like Kirk Cousins who's only been to the dance once and by the way, the year before it was Dallas that won the NFC East, but um but you're weighing a guy like Kirk Cousins who he's only been to the dance once, got blown out by the Green Bay Packers. Hasn't won a playoff game, but he's got three consecutive years of over 4,000 yards passing versus a guy like Nick Foles, who won a world championship, won Super Bowl MVP, put up some big numbers, had a previous season four years before as a pro bowler, but some very uninspiring seasons after that. How you juxtapose those two guys and how you prioritize their skill sets and how it all comes down. Again, for me, Will, I boil all this down. You know what? I'm using that fifth pick on a quarterback come hell or high water, and I'm using all my free agent money to build around the guy I plan on taking in the first round. That's what I'm going to do to hell with the fre- the, the the veterans, but I don't think that's what's going to happen with the Broncos, at least unless they have to. I think they're going to go heavily after Kirk Cousins, and they might. I'm sure they will call to see what it's going to take to get Kirk, or, uh, Nick Foles, but at the end of the day, I think it'll be a veteran that the Broncos end up having starting next year. I can't argue with it. You know, I think if I'm Elway, I set my price for both Cousins and a guy like Nick Foles where you say, you know, we'll call Philadelphia, we'll call Harry Roseman and, and say, what's it going to take to get Foles? And if it's more than, you know, where the Broncos have drawn the line in the sand, I say, you know, thanks, but no thanks. And then you negotiate with Kirk Cousins or you negotiate with the Washington Redskins, you know, given the recent news that um, Dan Snyder may, may place the yeah. franchise tag on Kirk Cousins again, mm. as unbelievable as it seems. Mm. Um, I, I think you say, you know, here's what we're willing to pay for you. And if you go over that, you know, good luck you elsewhere. Yep. Um, but we've got our price and we're sticking to it and we're not going to pay a cent over, you know, whatever arbitrary dollar amount that we've decided on. And, you know, if not, we'll go and we'll, we'll, you know, leave it up to the draft and we'll leave it up to our scouts and say, you know, we'll take Sam Darnold or Josh Rosen or Baker Mayfield at pick five and we'll be happy with that. That's right. And it's going to be a very interesting uh, next few weeks. The free agency period, of course, opens in early March. Actually, I think it's the second week of March. So we're about a month out or so from free agency and then, of course, the draft. So we're going to have a ton of great content coming your way at milehighhuddle.com. Will and I are going to continue to drop some pods each and every week uh, leading up to that point, talking different storylines and different buzz on stories here, stories there. Meanwhile, of course, Nick and Carl are going to be doing a more draft-focused, a draft-oriented podcast as they continue to do with Huddle Up. And then, of course, Eric Trickle. He started a new show, Trickle Down Theories. Make sure you're subscribing to that on iTunes and Stitcher. So we're going to have a ton of content coming from you moving forward. So look forward to that. But that's all the time that we have for today's show. You can find Will in the Twitterverse, at WillKey6, myself, at Chad and Jensen. Tweet us your questions. We didn't have time to get to the mailbag today, but we're uh, always going to try to address your concerns on the show as often as we can. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you next week. Make sure you're subscribing. For Will, I'm Chad. Talk to you later. Mile high huddle. 
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 